Hello everyone and welcome to episode 338 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Sci-Fi series, and soon the new series, The Firestar. How are you, Al? Well, maybe it's a series. We're not sure if it's a series yet, but I'm okay. Thanks, Val. I'm very good. I'm cooking soup while I talk to you. So I've kind of got, you know, one ear on my lentils and one (laughs) ear on you. So if I'm a little bit distracted out, you know, I'd just like to put it out there that it's all because of the lentils. Okay. That sounds yummy. Well, it's, yeah, it's a Turkish fried red lentil soup and it's excellent. So it's, it's, don't you just love, the thing I love about, making soup and casseroles mm. and roasts and stuff. It's just that the fact that the whole house smells so good. Oh, yeah. It's just that thing of like my whole house just smells like onions basically right now. I love the smell because um, my new thing is roast chicken. Oh, thanks, yes. Thanks to you. Al's <laughs> <laughs> handy roasting tips. <laughs> In fact, I will be having roast chicken tomorrow night and the oh, smell, oh. it's just fantastic. I love I it anyway. It does make a very... whole difference experience with these things so I get excited about such things but hey we want to give a big shout out to Petteri Harlove I think that is the uh, correct pronunciation who has left us a review all the way from the United States and they've said loving these podcasts I just these podcasts I just started listening to this when I saw that you guys interviewed my favorite author I got sucked in and I'm loving all of these podcasts how cool all the way from America who was the favourite author? I don't know. This is the I'm thing. on the edge of my seat. It hasn't been revealed. Oh. We would love to know. Make sure you let us know, Petra. Yeah, if you're in Harla. the yeah, if you're if you're in the uh, podcast community, please share that information. I would love to know which of the interviews Absolutely. it was. Absolutely. So do join you on to us. the podcast yeah. community. Um, and if anyone else hasn't joined the podcast community yet, it's on Facebook. It's free to join, and it's a group of fantastic people who are all listeners. So just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there on Facebook, of course. Now, in terms of our link this week, we've got a really cool link that's on the Australian Writers' Centre blog called Should I Plan My Novel? 20 authors tell us how they get it done. Because this is a really interesting thing because people often talk about whether you are a plotter, as in you plot out your entire novel, or you're a pantser where you don't know where it's going and you are writing by the seat of your pants. And I always find the whole pantsing thing, and I know you pants as well, um, but you have some idea sometimes of where you're going, but you're pantsing sort of the, the, the bits in between. And I always find it fascinating that people can pants because I am not one of those people. <laughs> no, it's an interesting thing. I think it's one of those situations where people who who don't plot um, yeah. can't really understand how you do it and people mm. who do plot can't understand how you could possibly start with, you know, three and a half words and mm. just write until you figure out what your story is about. The thing that I find really interesting about the whole plotting versus, you know, pantsing and plantsing and all of those various ridiculous words that people use for this stuff Mm. is um, it often surprises me who doesn't plot, like in the Mm. sense that, you know, you would imagine, wouldn't you, that your your basic, you know, your 
your your mystery writer or your yes. thriller writer Crime. or your, yes. you know people who are putting together these amazing puzzles and things like yes. that you're imagining that those people would be you know all over the plot like they would have to have it all figured out before they start and they would need to yeah. um and in actual in actual fact it's often not the case it's mm. often i remember leanne moriarty when we spoke to her a thousand years ago talking about how she had no idea what was going to happen you know i think it was the husband's wife we were talking about she had no idea she had written 75,000 words and she still didn't yes. know who who you know who done it so to speak and it because yeah. kind of like she was sitting at the traffic lights waiting to turn right on uh Sydney's northern beaches one day and it suddenly was like oh of course of course mm. that's who it is you know um and Michael Robotham is another one who just Amazing. you know makes it up as he goes along and so that's fascinating and the thing I like about this post is that a lot of these, uh, in fact, pretty much all of them, I think, are, have have come out of um, interviews that we've done on the podcast. So they're kind yeah. of like stealing those interviews that we've done on the podcast and also linking to the interviews so you can hear the entire thing if you want to. And, um, you know, it just reminds me just of the diversity of authors that we talk to in the sense of how they go about stuff, what they're doing, what they're writing, how they're, you know, how they're approaching it. And, and the reason I love that is I think that there's always going to be someone that you relate to. Like when you're mm. listening to those interviews, there's, you know, it doesn't matter where you are on the writing journey or what kind of writer you are, there's going to be an interview that's going to be like, oh, right, now, yeah, that's me. I get it. Yeah. That's exactly what I do. And I think um, that hearing that can be so um, reaffirming, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's so diverse and people, I mean, uh, some people plot within an inch of their life. They know what is going to happen in every single scene. We've spoken, you know, previously to Kylie Ladd and she has right <laughs> the down a spreadsheet. It's just, <laughs> she has a spreadsheet. She's working on a spreadsheet for it. I saw her on Twitter the other day working on a spreadsheet for a new novel. And, mm. you know, I just will always remember her comment about how for her writing is like pulling out a tapeworm. And it's yeah. just like, it's just been one of those images that stuck with me forever. <laughs> Oh, anyway, join our podcast community and let us know whether you are a plotter or a pantser and whether you've tried the other and what yeah. happened. I'm really yeah, interested to know that just to see yeah, what yeah. happened. All right. So we have a competition this week. We have three copies of The Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner. Now, I know there's some real Jane Austen devotees out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're one of them. Uh, but, uh, I love Jane. We, you, you love Jane, okay. I love so Jane. We, we have three copies of the Jane Austen Society. It's only a few months since the war ended, but the little village of Chawton is about to be hit by another devastating blow. The Chawton estate and site of Jane Austen's cherished former home is in danger of being sold to the highest bidder. <gasps> Eight villagers are brought together by their love for the famous author's novels to create the Jane Austen Society. As new friendships form and the pain of past begins to heal, surely they can find a way to preserve Austen's legacy before it's too late. So if you would like your chance to win one of three copies, go to writercentre.com.au slash win. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 13th of July. And if you're at that URL in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic um, competition, other competition for you to enter. So now, Al, yes, are you um, ready for the word of the week? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
yeah, well, given last week's was, you know, we had the entirely interesting conversation about how many J's there were on the Scrabble board, I feel <laughs> I could probably brace myself, yep. Okay, brace yourself. The word of the week this week is betimes, B-E-T-I-M-E-S, betimes. Do you know what that is? No. Huh, okay. So huh. <laughs> it's an old-fashioned word that refers to early or before it's too late. So if you want to impress people with this, the use of this uncommon word, you might say he avoided the bully after school because he was oh, I've warned. <laughs> I feel like that's, yeah. I've written might want to restart that, that again. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> It's going so well, Valerie. I don't know. I just feel like this one's flying along. Uh, Maybe you should should start again with the sentence. You would say something like he uh, he avoided the bully after school because he arrived at the bus stop betimes his usual, you know, I'm not going well here, am I? No. Why would you not just say he avoided the bully after school because he was warned betimes that there would be an ambush That's at right. the bus stop? In fact, yeah. that was what the word was supposed to be. <laughs> I think so. I'm glad you've got me here read to fill my in own the writing. <laughs> I cannot read my own writing. He was warned betimes that there would be an ambush at the bus stop. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not feeling like this one. Like, given that you're struggling to actually put it into a sentence, I'm not feeling like it's one that we're going to see a lot of. I think it's because I'm tired. Yeah, probably. You know? Everybody's yeah. tired. I think we're all. I think the whole world is suffering from insomnia. I think so. All right. Mm. So I kind of stuffed up the times this week, but that is our word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre and our online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course will help you find your voice, create characters dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love. You'll also have your very own tutor providing personalised feedback on your writing. Here's what Catherine Pelosi says. When I uh, first decided I wanted to write, I was actually living in the UK and I just all of a sudden started thinking about stories and writing. I thought, wow, I'd really like to write for children, but I had no idea how. So when I came back to Sydney, I was like, I need to find out how to do this. And I found the course Writing for Children and Young Adults at the Australian Writers' Centre and I enrolled and it was brilliant from the start. It was just like entering this whole world of like magic and happiness and I've never left because it's just so great learning about writing and children's books. For me, the most useful part of the course was learning about all the different components of storytelling. You might have an idea, but how do you actually put it all together? And there's so many different elements. Learning all the technical side is, there's a lot to it. The presenter at the um, course was really supportive. And I think also being uh, with other writers, other aspiring writers is really important because you need that community. Writing can be quite isolating. You're often just at your computer typing away. So um, I've met people through the course I've done at the Australian Writers' Centre and kept in touch. So it's a great way to find your writing buddies as well. When I found out that I was being published, it was the best feeling ever. The happiest day I can remember so far. It was really, really exciting. Uh, If I think back to when I first did the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, which was my first 
sort of entry into writing for children to the moment I got published, it's sort of unbelievable that it happened, an awesome feeling. Now I can call myself a children's book author, which is amazing. And I have my first book coming out, Quarks Academy, and I've signed two more book deals. I would say if you want to do a course at the Australian Writers' Centre, definitely do it. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got, Al? Oh, I had the most delightful, and I do mean delightful, conversation with um, picture book creator Gus Gordon. Um, now, it's one of those situations where being a very visual person, because Gus uh, started out as an illustrator before he began writing and illustrating his own picture books, um, he he uh, we I said to him, oh, we just need the audio, but he needed to show me things. So <laughs> I was watching him on the video and I was on the audio aware that the listeners couldn't see some of the stuff that he was showing. So then I'm describing to, I'm having to describe to some to you as we go through some of what he was talking about. So it was highly entertaining, as you can imagine, um, but it's just such an interesting insight into the whole creative process of of coming up with a with a picture book character, creating a story around them, and it was, it was delightful. So I'm hoping you guys really enjoy this because I very much enjoyed the conversation. Gus Gordon is an internationally acclaimed illustrator and author. He has illustrated and written over 80 books for children. He was asked to illustrate his first book in 1996 and illustrated many books for other writers before his first written and illustrated by Gus Gordon picture book, Wendy, about a motorcycle riding stunt chicken, was a notable book in 2010 Children's Book Council of Australia Picture Book of the Year Awards. Since then, Gus has won many awards for illustration and for his own picture books. His latest picture book, Finding Francois, is out now. Welcome to the program, Gus. Thank you for having me, Alison. So we're going to cast our minds back into the realms of time to 1996 and that mm. first illustration work that you were offered. Like, What were you doing at the time and what was your response when someone said, can you illustrate this book for me? Um, back back then when I first started out, I was a essentially a cartoonist doing whatever I could to make uh, ends meet drawing pictures. So I was doing stuff for magazines and newspapers, but it was pretty slim pickings. Uh, and I, I, I really just wanted to do whatever I could to, um, to make a living drawing at that stage. And I, so I was drawing these cartoons and a good friend of mine, a fellow called Mark David, uh, who was a pretty prolific, uh, gun for hire, I guess, illustrator, for many publishers, he was had to pull out uh, from illustrating a, a book, and he recommended me to do to fill in and do the job. Now, I back then I, I really hadn't thought much about children's books for a long time. Uh, you know, I was twenty, what was I about twenty four, and I I really had not thought about children's books for for years and years. And the idea of it seemed quite alien, but I, th I thought I'd, I'll give it a crack. And so they, it, the, the, the book was, a, uh, that was an educational um, uh, book 
and it was called a series called Super Dupers by I think it was back then they were called Pearson uh, Longman before I think before Penguin acquired them. Anyway, uh, the book was called uh, The Trouble, yeah, The Trouble with Parents by Diane Bates, and uh, they asked me if they, I could do a, a uh, illustrate the first chapter just uh, to have a look what I what I did and. And as st- pretty much straight from the beginning, I realised that wow, this is this this is actually really fun, and I really liked the way the words and the pictures worked together. And I could sort of even from the very first book, I realised I could tell I could be a bit daring, and I could sort of do have my own little narrative going on. And so, very from the very outset. Uh, and thankfully I got the job, although having looked, looking back at my work back then, I don't know why they employed me, but because, uh, oh, you know, it was pretty early days. But the thing that for me that still stands out to this day was the, the, the idea that I could read the text and then it was basically up to me. The, I had all this power that I could, it was my interpretation of the story which I still think is an a, a incredible honour uh, that we've given and it's a privilege to be able to, to do. So that's, that's, where, that's where it first began. All right, so let's just mm. talk a little bit about that because you spent many years illustrating <clears throat> the writing of other people. Um, mm. What is your process? Like you said, you know, that you can create your own sort of narrative within the narrative. Like do you enjoy mm. that collaborative process and the ability to, as you say, interpret the text as you can, should, yeah. choose. Uh, <laughs> yes, and I think, and you know, the, the, I think the more sort of uh, autonomy the illustrator gets once they've received the manuscript, the better. In the early days, uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. You were given often a quite a, a descriptive brief about, what they were thinking of about the story, there was still wriggle, wriggle room for doing something interesting. But uh, I, I, those early days, they were, there was a sort of a list of things that they had. But I've, I've found from the get-go, from the early days, uh, you know, it, it was kind of a, a weird experience because I'd get this manuscript and I was doing probably illustrating maybe eight to ten books a year. That's how many I was doing. And they're all chapter books. And so I get the manuscript and I'd write a ton of notes. Of course, I had no uh, communication with the author, uh, and that was very much frowned upon back then. Wow. And it, it was just really up to me to then uh, come up with the characters, how they looked. Sometimes the publisher asked for character sketches initially so that they could uh, approve them and so that they were happy for me to then go ahead and do the final illustrations. But they were pretty quick, quick dash things that I I would, I hesitate to say sort of pump out because that's disrespectful of the work. But I did them and I had to do them in pretty quick fashion and they were mostly black and white drawings and sometimes a bit of ink wash as well, so just a bit of, little bit of black ink as well. They're pretty. They're pretty quick, and and uh, yeah, they they were on the market very fast. Right. Mm. Okay. So these days, 
are things different? Like in the sense of like if you work with a with an author these days, if you're illustrating someone else's work, is it much more of a collaborative process now? It it's it's not really. Okay. Uh, having said that, you and it really depends on the publisher and who you're working with. Some publishers I find uh, don't mind if you get in touch with the author and ask them often the specific things that I sort of need to know or perhaps it's just a, a feel or a general tone of the story or it might be something quite specific to the actual narrative. Um, but I, I find that in the US they more than Australia, they really do not want you to work with the, uh, with the author. In Australia, just for the fact that I've been around for so long, I, I, I tend to know the author anyway. And uh, so I get in touch with them invariably just to ask them a few questions. But otherwise, I'd actually prefer just to have the experience um, by myself in my own headspace, um, working to, to figure out what I can bring to the story myself. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So do you have, as an illustrator, obviously, who's worked with a lot of different people, do you have some tips for authors when it comes to working with illustrators? Like, is it let the illustrator do what they need to do? Like, is that the tip? I think that's the main one, Alison, yeah. I think allow uh, allow the uh, the illustrator to bring their voice to the story. Yeah. It, and that's I've always thought of that that's a pretty gutsy call and it's a kind of a brave thing uh, for the author to, to, to do because, you know, they're pr- basically putting up their hands and going, right, here's my baby, uh, <laughs> now now it's your turn yeah. to do what you do. And there's a, a lot of trust there, but, of course, that's what the publisher does. The publisher picks an illustrator they think is going to best bring the story to life, an illustrator that's going to suit um, the what the story is all about. And um, actually, and by and large, I have to say, publishers do a pretty good job of matching uh, the author and the illustrator up together. Mm. Okay. So let's talk about your own picture books because, you know, having done this for quite some time, you then decided mm-hmm. it was kind of time to create your own stories. What brought you to that decision? <clears throat> um, I think after doing so many stories on – the first thing really is that I just I really wanted to do picture books. I wanted to do um, nice big picture books, but because I'd done so many chapter books, um, you know, I gosh, I'd done over seventy by this by that stage. Mm. Um, people couldn't see me as a picture book illustrator. They could only see me as that guy that you hire to do a a very quick chapter book. Um, but yeah, I I just really desperately wanted to be a picture book um, il- illustrator at that point. But also too, I uh, I felt I was being pigeonholed into certain types of stories and uh, boys' stories, especially about you know gross things, and <laughs> that and that was really trendy at the time, and you know, and I that's fine. But I really wasn't doing the stories that I wanted to do. And I, it came to a point where I, I just thought, stuff this, I'm, I'm going to write them myself. And I, I sort of believed enough in uh, uh, maybe this is a good thing about being naive, 
uh, in my writing ability to bring something to the table. And I'd always written, you know, I, I'd never stop writing. I'd always written poetry and, uh, you know, stories. And, and English was a really passionate subject. I was a big reader. I still am a big reader. Um, so I sort of felt I knew how story worked. But it was another thing altogether to be able to begin, uh, you know, actually putting story together and uh, working out structure and all that sort of stuff, which I sort of worked out very naively as I went along. Mm. Well, that was going to be a question for you because, you know, you had worked on on so many stories at that stage. You know, Mm. um, I wondered whether or not you sort of were able to, as you said, and also you're a big reader, you you know, you liked writing Mm. stories. Was it a a steep learning curve for you to actually, you know, create that story? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, I, it, it, it was a steep learning curve trying to figure out how picture books work and the, the, the cadence and the rhythm and how important every single word was and all these little things like that. But on the, on the flip side, I, I learnt really fast and I just embraced all, everything I could. And I read and I bought lots of picture books and I still have them on, on my shelf. And I just sort of ate it all up and uh, I just found a way to to do it. And I had good mentors too, good help. I took Wendy in the early stages to uh, Laura Harris, who I knew just through uh, being an illustrator. And she was a big believer uh, in what the story and the, these characters that I had, especially this Wendy, and she gave me a, um, a development contract so that I wouldn't take it elsewhere. And oh, sorry, then I, she gave me sort of six months to work on on this book on on Wendy, this farcical story about a motor, motorcycle riding chicken. <laughs> and uh, and well, when I think back, I think what was I thinking? But uh, I, I guess you know it all makes sense looking back, doesn't it? But, yeah, it, for some reason she believed enough in it and then we took it to the next stage and I uh, had a, I was lucky enough to work with a, uh, a, a good editor who I pretty much had all the way through, uh, Katrina uh, Lehman, uh, where she was Katrina Webb. And, uh, yeah, so that was very fortunate, I think, stumbling upon uh, Penguin and Laura and a good editor, of course, as you know, is just invaluable. Um, was Wendy the first one that you'd ever tried? Was it the first picture book kind of manuscript that you'd ever written or had you tried other things prior to Wendy? No, I, it was, it pretty much was the first. I just, while I was doing Wendy and trying to figure it out, I came up with another little idea and Penguin uh, were doing a, a small picture book. I was just trying to remember what it was called. I think it was called Puffin Baby, a series called Puffin Baby. And I wrote a quick story about a dog called Noodles and it was called A Day with Noodles and it was really just about this dog's day and they published it and then they canned the series straight away. Oh. <laughs> um, even though the book had sold. Do you feel responsible? <laughs> I think I think that's why. I think that's why. The, um, it was basically because of my book. Um, everyone could see it was just not up to scratch. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh Anyway, so that was the 
that just came out before before Wendy and then Wendy quickly followed after that. Mm. Okay. So your official bio, which of course I have read in the lead up to this to this <laughs> yep. uh, interview, says that your writing is always and anthropomorphic. I can't even say it. Anthropomorph- <laughs> anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic. Thank mm. you. And that you attribute this to your love of Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like why why are they why are your characters always animals? <clears throat> um, it's a good it's a good question. I was really attracted to those sorts of books as a child uh, when, you know, I like Wind in the Willows, uh, fantastic story and still is a, an amazing story. It works on lots of different levels. But I really like the idea of these characters, Badger and and uh, Toad and, and Rat and, you know, by the river and some there's something about putting characters in animal form that sweetens the deal. It's almost like cheating in some ways. <laughs> I, I sort of see it like you've already got a, a little bit of a head start with children before the narrative even starts to roll. And you have these animals and you can sort of get away with a lot more. It, it, I find that uh, even quite dark and um, not that I do a lot of dark stuff with mine, but I even quite sort of even controversial or perhaps um, things that are, the kids might find a little bit startling. With an animal, if an animal is in that role as the, that character, it does seem to um, make it a little bit more palatable for the reader. And the other thing is I just loved animals too. I grew, grew up on a farm, so I was close to animals and I loved I loved animal books. Richard Scarry, do you remember Richard yes, Scarry? Yes, I loved Richard Scarry. Yeah, and I I still love Richard Scarry. In fact, I've got a, I, I, here is a Richard Scarry book that I about his life. I I still find his stuff really great. There's something about his pigs driving cement trucks and foxes driving buses, and uh, there was so much going on, and. Uh, it was so I, I because I like drawing animals as well. It just seemed quite a natural thing for me to to pick up, and I really like to try and match the character's personality to an appropriately um, suitable anim, animal. And, and quite often, I'm not sure exactly why I pick an animal. So often, it's not a stereotype. So. Obviously, with Herman and Rosie, a book I did later, um, uh, Herman is a crocodile, and and I ask kids this when I go to schools. You know, what would you normally attribute? What sort of personality would you attribute to a crocodile? Uh, typically, and they, you know, they say, well, you know, probably aggressive and angry and scary and words like that. But in actual fact, in the story. Herman is is meek and shy and conservative and dorky. Uh, he's all those. He's the opposite. So it, it doesn't stereotypes often uh, aren't necessarily the best way to go. And I don't really know why how that works. I'm still trying. I'm still fascinated. Maybe perhaps when you put clothes on animals, they that can help bring them to life in certain ways and help shape their personalities. But uh, it's not always 
the, the stereotypes that you think, like the fox being cunning and that sort of that sort of thing. It's 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 more than not the character finds me rather than me find the character, which is uh, probably a very strange thing to say. And good thing I work by myself. <laughs> We're all like that. <laughs> yes, no, I know. It is an interesting question though, because you know this notion of you know why Wendy's a chicken and you know mm. why why Francois, who we're going to talk about in a minute, is a pig and all mm. of those sorts of things is, is <clears throat> I guess as a non-illustrator, as someone who doesn't really think in pictures, to my very sad disappointment, because I would love oh. to be that kind of person. Yeah. Um, I I find it fascinating how you know you know that why is Francois not a koala? You know, like it's it's an interesting thing of how you how an how a character comes to life as something that is not just the traits of that character, but a, mm. a quite different, you know, physical kind of representation. So, you know, it's an it's an interesting thing. And I like you say that they find you. Just did Francois yeah. just turn up as a pig? Here that's, I am. Yeah, that's gosh, that's exactly how it happens. Okay. They just turn. They just turn up. So, like all uh, illustrators, we sketch a lot and we keep lots of sketchbooks. And it's they're basically just sketches in the hope that that uh, we'll find, stumble upon something of worth, something interesting, something that we want to flesh out. Uh, and normally, you just you know you do loads of sketches and nothing is ever appealing. Um, but every now, and then, well, in your as far as a story goes anyway. Yeah. But, you know, just for instance, I don't know. Can you see that, Alison? Yeah. I can see it. So just yeah. describe to me, just describe for our audience what you're holding up. <clears throat> oh, yes. Okay, I forgot about that. Um, so in my sketchbooks, I, I have I – I really don't know where these things come from, but, like, for instance, this page, first page, I just have a, a, a red-headed bird – a strange-looking sort of pigeon-like bird. Which is gorgeous. So some then, you know, it really is all over the shop. There's some Parisian dogs. There is a duck <clears throat> looking through a patisserie window. In fact, this was this particular picture was the inspiration for a book I did called Somewhere Else about a duck who doesn't travel, who doesn't want to travel. Um, and uh, you can see there's a duck here looking through a, a Parisian um store window and look this uh, i have birds lots of birds and uh, i just want to say can i just add while well because i our audience is just listening to this but i am looking at at the sketchbook that gus is holding up and i as a non-illustrative person want to take it home it is absolutely <laughs> a beautiful beautiful thing um so you know like i'm watching the Thank the you. rough sketch come out of your mind there and it's a gorgeous thing and they all look like they could be something to me but to you they're like Maybe, maybe not. Yes, yeah, they, that's exactly right. And it's sort of a, it's like a feverish, uh, a feverish um, habit that we have where, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when you're just sketching, you don't really know what you're sketching. In some ways, you're just uh, doodling and just seeing where where your line, the line takes you. And then one day. You know, you'll draw a character <clears throat> or an animal or a person that seems to be a character. It, there's a big difference between just drawing um, an animal and that is just an animal and then drawing another animal that is seems to be a character of its own. It's almost like that 
the story has been written about this character and I've arrived upon it and now it's up to me to figure out what their story is all about. So it's kind of, I'm chasing the story once I've discovered the character. And ah. all, all my books have started in that visual sense. I've, I've come across the, the character, I've discovered, that's how I, I really think like that. I've, I've found the character and then I'm fleshing out through numerous sketches afterwards what this character uh, character story is is all about, and I think that's the fun. That's the I think that's essentially the the most interesting and appealing, attractive thing about what I do is when you chase story, and I know you do in different ways as well, and in a less visual sense. But when you have that initial idea, and you then you begin to chase the story, that it almost is the most exciting part of the whole picture book process, I think. I can imagine. All right, mm. so let, let's talk about Finding Francois, which is described yeah. as a heartwarming story about hope, possibility and finding a friend, and which I have here and is just a beautiful, beautiful book. Can Thank you. you. Talk, so talk us through the process of that. So obviously uh, you, you've described your process. You've, you've, you know, through your sketching, through your, you know, working through things, you've discovered Francois, who's a mm -hmm. very cute, little pig um what what was the process from there like you you then followed followed francois through the story is that how it worked uh pretty pretty much uh so there's a couple things going on there so once one day i did and i'm holding this up for you but i'll describe it one day i did a drawing of a pig throwing a bottle into what is um undoubtedly a uh the Seine River in, in Paris. Uh, and so I drew this picture and I was in Paris at the time, which is a place I, I tend to um, spend as much time as possible. At. Uh, I, I love it. And I, uh, and so Paris was obviously in my head at the time and I drew this pig and then it was, I was trying to think what, what's going on here with this bottle. <clears throat> and the other thing is I, I've always been a little bit obsessed with the idea of a message in a bottle and yeah. how that, even if that ju just is a one-way trip, just that one time, yeah. and it, it arrives somewhere, could be a days, months, years later, and the idea of someone reading this and it could, if, if, it, if that little note could have be, be something inspirational or a message that that person or animal connected with, I think that that in a nutshell is really interesting premise. And so then it was, I, I, I was in the, that space of trying to chase the story and I, then I wrote a line and this is how my brain works like this. I, I do a drawing and then I think of a line and then I sort of flip flop back and forth in this, kind of organic way cobbling uh, the story together. So I wrote this line uh, and it, all I'd had written down was, uh, one afternoon Alice walked down to the river and threw a bottle into the water. Inside the bottle she had written a note which read, hello world, I am Alice. And that, that's all I had written and I thought that, that's enough. And then I started doing some more drawings and then I thought, oh, I really should, 
where is where is Alice? And I'm, I need to go back to the beginning and introduce Alice to the reader, and and that's where it really it all began. So I sort of flip flop back and forth. It's it's I, in some ways I wish it was a bit more structured. Uh, you know, <laughs> write the story then illustrate it. Mm. But I do like. I think it works better. Uh, the the way I go back and forth because I I think the words and the pictures tend to marry together and or fuse together in, in a better fashion if I do it in this way I think. How long does it take you to write <clears throat> an illustrated picture book? Like, is this a process of years or is this a yeah. process of weeks or what? It's 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 normally years. Uh, the most often it's normally years. You have this idea and then you know how it goes it, with an idea and off you, you go and you race and you, off you go and it's really fun <clears throat> and then you stop. You, <laughs> it's bang, you hit this problem and you don't know where to go. How do I get my character from A to B? And you sort of put it down and in some ways the, the less I think about something, these story problems, the the easier for for me it is to solve it, uh, and so they sort of they sort of dwell away in the back of my mind like a stew, and it, so these it just takes uh, so long. I wish it was quicker. I did do I did do one book <laughs> that was enormously quick and frightfully quick. It came to me so fast. I did wonder whether I should even attempt it to to take it to my publisher. But I, I drew a bug on a leaf and in a sketchbook, the same sketchbook I just showed you before, and and then suddenly the bug was talking to another bug, and then suddenly the the two of them had this dialogue, this very funny dialogue, as they looked at this glorious peach above them. <laughs> and then within a day, I'd pretty much written the story. Wow. It just went from one... It was, it's all dialogue, this story too. So it was a, quite a different path for me, having these, uh, having just dialogue, and back and forth, back and forth, and then and then we've got the twist at the end, which took a little bit longer to think of, but essentially the story came to me in a day. But most of my books, you know, they just stew for years. Uh, they just take a long time. So <laughs> here's a question: Do you still love? creating illustrations do you still love illustrating even after all of these years of doing it because sometimes you know the thing that we love we think we want to do it every day but the actual reality of doing it every day um can sometimes you know like it becomes it's a job isn't it so does that yeah. does that temper the love or is the love still there the love is always there and I, it really goes back to that inner child and where i why i why i started drawing in the first place in that, in that way that uh, there's a yearning to do something, uh, and I still think that. Having said that, you're exactly right in that there are still plenty of days where I it really does feel like a job and I'm trying to nut it out, and when things aren't working, I really wonder why I chose this career. <laughs> um, I, there are, there, you know what it's like I times do. when you're, you're writing – and you, you think, God, how have I got away with this for so long? I am such a fraud. This is just absolute shite. And I just, I, 
I think, gosh, everyone can surely see me for for the fraud that I am. Uh, and and honestly, sometimes it could be the next day, and you think this is going to win awards. I'm a genius. <laughs> so it's, I'm so clever. I've solved this problem, and um, the wheels are rolling again. And I'm a new oh dear, oh dear, our partners. I don't, you know, we they uh, they get us through this process. Uh, when when we are at our worst uh, doubting selves. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people would be very reassured to hear you say that, that you have days where you think that you're a fraud because I think it's uh, it's an incredibly reassuring thing to know that, you know, even someone like you who has won all these awards and done all this amazing stuff has days where they're like, mm. I'm sure the world can see me for who I truly am. <laughs> oh, look, it's the good thing about, I suppose, getting old is that... Um, you you realise that most people I, I know who work in the creative industry, who write, who illustrate, uh, feel exactly the same. And, uh, y- you know, it, it's funny you say that, uh, that uh, given that I've been around for so long and blah, 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 you know, and I think of somebody else like Sean Tan, who I, who I know has had real doubts about his work. And I know I could name so many people. I know as friends or colleagues who who feel exactly the same. And the way I, I sort of look at it, and I was talking to someone about this only last week, I'm not sure I should name who they are, but this as someone who's a very successful writer and illustrator. And she was sort of saying this very thing about they're really doubting their work lately and uh, quality of it and so on. And I think it's a sort of a a, a little bit of a, a human nature thing where we, I think we sort of have to be like this in the sense that we need to be constantly uh, critiquing and analysing our work and doubting our work in order for that work to be something of worth, yeah. order for it to be... You, I think you need to bring your A game to everything. You, it's in order for it to be, you, for you to be satisfied with it, it, way before you even send it off to the publisher, you've got to just be satisfied with it yourself. You've got to be your own worst critic and you really have to be hard on yourself. And sometimes, you know, it hurts when you do beat yourself up but in the end, when you look back at the work, uh, by and large, it, you, there's a satisfaction that you got through and you made something nice, something worthwhile. Definitely. Mm. And I think the other thing that you flagged there is something that Valerie and I talk about a lot too, which is the importance and value of having writer friends, people around you who understand where you yeah. are and what you're going through and can help talk you down from the ceiling when you <laughs> when you require talking down yes. from the ceiling <laughs> yes that kind of stuff yeah absolutely um, for so sure i'd imagine that under normal circumstances you would be <clears throat> out doing school visits and other events to promote uh francois mm-hmm. um which has obviously like probably been slightly tempered at the moment but i guess um is our author events, our school visits, are they something that you enjoy? Like what, what do you think is the key to a good one if you're having them? I think, well, to answer your first question, yes, uh, I've, it's 
difficult at the moment, of course, um, and all my publicity uh, tours have been cancelled, sadly, and uh, <laughs> I was supposed to be, I know, uh, just like everything else this year, everything's been cancelled, and I'm supposed to be in New York right now, but uh, yes. it's, that's not a good place to be. Anyway, uh, yes, look, I, I think every writer, um, illustrator, needs to find a good balance of what, uh, what's, how much speaking work they do uh, because, you know, not everyone is good at it or not everyone uh, finds it a natural thing to do. Yeah. There's, I mean, there, as you know, there's a certain expectation from publishers to sort of sell your wares and, and to uh, visit schools and things like that. And I've been doing it for a long time and a funny thing happened a couple of years ago after 20-plus years of speaking, I sort of found myself zoning out where I would be uh, speaking to a group of children and I, I could tell that I was saying the right things like a tape between my ears. It yeah. just reeled on through. Yeah. But my head, I, I remember thinking in this out-of-body experience way, oh, gee, I, I should stop in at the butcher on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> Grab a couple of those lamb chops. Um, it's like, I really need to email that person back. Um, and then I go, oh, my God, I'm still standing in front of this class. I better <laughs> engage <laughs> with the audience. And I just, I just, I remember saying to my wife, Ali, about it. Said, That's not a healthy thing to do. I, I just reached a point where uh, I, I felt that I was disconnected and I really should have take a break, and so I did. I took I took two years off. I took one year. I, I, I spoke to uh, various speaking agents, and I said, I'm just going to take a year, year off. They said, good. We've been expecting this phone call, mostly, they said. And then so I enjoyed it so much, and I got so much writing done, I took another year off. <laughs> and then I was supposed to be back this year, uh, and I booked. We had all my weeks booked in various states and whatever, and, uh, and of course, COVID came, and and it looks like I've got another year off. Uh, yeah, oh, you'll be but, well rested for next year. I'll be well rested, but the point the point is, uh, it you know I needed a break, and and uh, but I, I do think I do think visiting schools is a valuable thing, um, you know, for both the, of obviously the kids and uh, for for yourself as as well, and I, because it you get to. By doing this sort of thing, it makes you analyse what it is exactly that you do and try to break it down so that you can kind of prove to kids that it's not a magical thing. It's not, you know, you, you um, if, if that child likes to write or draw, uh, there's no reason why they can't do exactly what uh, we do. It's, yeah. it's not a – I like trying to demystify the whole process because I – I think it's. I don't try to be a any, um, a, a, you know, this aloof author type. I, I I love the idea of breaking it down so kids can see. Gosh, that, that actually looks like something I could do. Yeah. I think that that's part of the whole thing that I find really interesting and um, that makes me keep going to back to schools and and libraries talking to people. Fantastic. Mm. All right. 
Gus, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. I, I've just, you know, fascinating and I've learned so much and I'm so excited that <laughs> I you. got to see your sketchbook. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying that so that everyone out there listening to us knows that I saw it and they didn't. So that's oh, I'm sorry, everybody. No, no. <laughs> um, but uh, we're just going to finish up today with our last question that we always ask our interviews and that is, for your top three tips for aspiring picture book creators out there who are listening to us right now. Okay. Um, I, I'd say the first thing is um, stick to your guns. Stick to the things that you know well and the things that uh, you feel naturally drawn to. So, you know, don't try and write outside yourself in, in the very beginning try and stick to things that, that you're passionate about and and that you feel uh, is going to be something that it, that you're, you'll be able to flesh out and use in a, in a narrative. So, you know, stick stick to your guns there. And I would say <clears throat> meet, meet people, get to know other writers, people, you know, from the bottom of the food chain all the way up, go to things uh, and, and get to know people who are doing exactly the same thing that you're doing. Uh, and, the, and, and the last thing is don't go to too many of those things <laughs> <laughs> because I've seen it time and time again, the same people, they just keep going to the same meetings and the same events and so on about becoming a writer when I, I just think their time is best spent actually doing what they want to do, supposedly, yeah, yep. and that's just creating, uh, yep. creating writing. You know, if if you keep going to these things and uh, uh, and not actually um, setting out on your objective, to trying to actually write stories, um, you just you're missing the whole point of the thing, and you're just kind of wasting everybody's time. Uh, you just got to do it. That's just just. Do it and write in a direction. Go off and, and just make the time and then write. Brilliant. Mm. All right. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for your time today, Gus Gordon. Uh, of course, Finding Francois is on the shelves as we speak. It is an absolutely beautiful book and I'm sure it's going to go gangbusters for you. Um, and, Thanks, you know, Alice. Best of luck with the third year off the author talks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Unexpected third year off. Anyway, I'll be back, I'm back in the swing of things next year. So. Fantastic. Mm. Thank Look you. forward to it. Thank you. That was really enjoyable. There we go, Gus Gordon. How cool. Yeah, like just such a great interview. And um, I'm always fascinated by that creative process that allows people to, like, because, you know, I, I think you'll always really have a strong admiration for stuff you don't do particularly well yourself. Mm. And I have to say that drawing is, you know, I just, it's just not how I operate. It's not what, I mean, I know you do. You've got your, you know, all the various creative sides to your brain. But my, my uh, you know, drawing and illustration kind of uh, section of my brain is, quite underdeveloped let's just say well, that. you don't stick, actually stick know till you try no well, I do try I have tried okay. <laughs> in the past it's not good the boys laugh at me like my children right. are laughing at me so we won't we won't go there but um yeah so I have great admiration for people that can kind of conjure up you know and the, the other thing I find fascinating about illustrators is the consistency of 
of the characterization throughout, you know, 24, 36, however many drawings of, mm. of that character expressing and, and showing not only what that character's looking, doing, feeling, but, mm. you know, the world around that character as well. I think it's an, it's an amazing thing. Anyway, so that was very fun. Yes, very mm. fun. So what are you doing in the coming week, Al? <sighs> Surviving the school holidays oh, is yeah. one thing I'll be doing. Um and uh, that might be it, actually. That could be the whole lot of it. But, um, yeah, surviving the school holidays. That will be me. Okay, you, cool. What are you going to be doing? <laughs> well, ordinarily, as you know, I would say enjoying that there's no traffic on the roads and stuff like that. But ever since we've, you know, ever since COVID, I have been going out a whole lot less. So I'll probably just be experiencing more of the staying at home. <laughs> <laughs> Life after COVID, life. You so the life after COVID lockdown for you is similar to life in COVID lockdown. Yeah, it's um, I I'm I'm gonna suffer from what's it called? Foam low, foam malo. What's foam malo? Fear of missing lockdown. Oh, I didn't know mm. that was a thing. It's a thing. Foam low. Right. Yeah, because we're, mm. ex, you know, we've kind of discovered what it's like not to have such a hectic lifestyle and to stay at home a bit more. And um, So can I ask you this question? Are you actually yeah. just going to be sitting at home watching the Hamilton film back to back like over and Countless over again? times, yes. I've paid my subscription. I've made sure it works on every TV in this house. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. You're ready. Prepared. You're yeah. set. So yeah. you'll be able to watch so it in every I room in the house it no matter constantly. where you are. Correct. <laughs> Mm. And it's so worth eight dollars ninety nine. <laughs> Just sign up, really. Sign up <laughs> immediately. Not a problem. <laughs> All right, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Altate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on oh, where am I? Facebook and Instagram <laughs> at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.